All right, let's start with a little context. We're in week six of a six-week series. So we live in a world where success is very important, a culture that elevates and continually promotes being successful in business, sports, hobbies, relationships, really overall in the eyes of others. The reason why this is a fundamental part of our society is because it's a major drive for you and for me. We all deeply desire to be good at what we do, whatever that may be, being a nurse, being an advertisement, being a doctor, right? running an auto apartment, being a plumber, being a realtor, climbing, biking, being a professional leisure sport player, pong, bags, right? Whatever it is that you do, you want to do really well. Now, I feel a reason why we want to be successful is because we think that it will make us happy or satisfied and eventually content. Each of us pursues success and therefore happiness in many different ways. But I think three really define it. One, we want to gain the approval of others. More likes equals more happiness. Or make money and buy things that we know will make us happy. Or have power and the happy feeling that comes from power. In whatever you pursue, a major reason why you want to do it well is because you think that it will make you happier, which it will for a while. In order to gain an endless case of those happies, right, because we just don't want to momentarily, we pour ourselves into whatever we think will bring us contentment. And due to our culture's continual encouragement and our own innate desires, we constantly turn inward to find guidance on how to be successful. We are taught and believe from the youngest age that we know the best ways to be happy. So we think that what we do will leave us satisfied. We believe we are the masters of our own destiny and can create the life that we deeply desire. According to the Bible, though, we should approach success and the contentment that it brings in a polar opposite manner. We are the creation, not the creator. Yes, we have been given incredible abilities and the choice to do whatever we want to do, but in order to live the life that we want, one with contentment, right, happiness, satisfaction that does not go away, we must live the way that our creator designed us to live. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells us how to be successful in the eyes of our maker. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is a beautifully black and white and universal statement. It applies to all people, no matter their situation or circumstance. According to the entire Old Testament, that's what he's saying. On, this, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's for the Jews was a way to say the entire Old Testament. Everyone is made to make God their top priority, to elevate him above everything else in their life. We are also designed to love others in the same way that we want to be loved, which means when we interact with people, we do so to bring them what they need to make their lives better. This is the God of the Bible's definition of success. Therefore, I believe this is our creator's plan for bringing us happiness, satisfaction, and even better better contentment. But so often, we choose to be unsuccessful 
based on God's definition because we believe that we know the best way to make ourselves happy. Now, over the past five weeks, we've been looking at Saul's and David's pursuit of success, both good and bad ways that they tried to satisfy their longing for contentment. Tonight, we're going to delve into times where they were both seriously unsuccessful. Now, my hope as a teacher is that you walk away being able to answer this question, what do you do when you sin? What do you do when you sin? If nothing else, please come up with that answer before you leave here. If you've got a, questions about it, come and talk to me. But that's what I want you to know. What you do when you sin. Now, a quick reminder before we get into their specific stories. A majority of the books of the Bible are historical narrative. That means they're real stories about real people that took place in times just like ours. Different culture, right? But they were just people doing what you and I so often do. And so the beauty of these stories, if you will, this history, is that we can analyze other people's lives and learn lessons to apply to our own. Hope that makes sense. All right, so let's start with Saul. Where we're starting, he is king of Israel. He's been king for a while. Just like all of humanity, his main purpose is to love God and to love others. Now, as a public figure of God's people, it seems like God wants to use him as a role model, as an inspiration to his people to live the way that they were created to live. People look to him and at him as a motivator for the choices they make. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15. There, God tells Saul to utterly defeat the Amicalites. This, that means to destroy everyone and everything. Whole nother sermon in that. Saul initially obeys. He engages them in battle, and most likely because of God's power, Israel wins. They defeat the Amicalites. But instead of following God's command entirely, he follows his own logic and his innate desires. He spares the king. And the best of the sheep, and cattle and fatlings, fatlings and lambs and all that was valuable. Instead of making God his pri- priority and trusting God's plan, he brings back the defeated king and all that is shiny so that, most likely, he can gain the approval of the people. It seems that Saul's view of success is being well-liked by everyone. I believe he thinks that if he gets two million thumbs up, then he will be happy. Now, it's so easy to see this type of unsuccess in our lives. If you take two minutes to think about yourself and the way that you tend to operate, I promise you that you will find many examples of choosing your own popularity and glory over God. Times when you consciously and subconsciously do or say what directs people's attention to you and your talents instead of the one who made you and equipped you. Now, the fact that I have the microphone means that I should give an example of my life, right? And there's so many examples that I can give of this. The nice thing is for me, the good and the bad of this, God highlighted something within my mind, this type of sin this week. I teach for your approval. A major motivator has been for a long time to get up here to get your guys' approval because I believe that then that will make me happy. 
it's not what I should be doing. It's not the reason why I should be doing. But that is the reality of what I do. We so often, you and me both, believe that the approval of others will bring us the contentment that we so deeply desire. So we constantly make choices to elevate ourselves in the eyes of others instead of turning others to the maker of everything. All right, let's look at David. Now, at this point in David's life, his rule of the kingdom of Israel has been firmly established. Goliath has been defeated. Saul is out of the picture. All 12 tribes see him as king, and he has conquered a majority of the surrounding nations. Things are going really well. So let's look at 2 Samuel 12. Excuse me, 2 Samuel 11. Sorry, Seth. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened. Such a like dun, dun, dun sort of statement. It happened. One late afternoon, when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof roof of a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after a period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. David finds himself in a position of comfort and ease and then uses his power to satisfy his desire to be happy. Instead of holding to God's design, remember to love people the way that David wants to be loved, he follows his sexual passion and steals the wife of one of his men. But he doesn't stop there. Because Bathsheba is pregnant, David tries to cover his tracks. He brings Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home from war in hopes that he will sleep with his wife and then naturally think that the baby is his. Unfortunately, things do not go as planned. Uriah refuses to enjoy the comfort of his own home while his people are at war. Because plan A failed, David turns to plan B. Move Uriah to the front lines so that he is killed. Battle B is a success. Excuse me, plan B is a success. Once Bathsheba was done mourning, David makes her his wife. Problem solved. Now this is such a clear example of a godly man's momentary lapse of reason. When he feels his innate urges stirring within him, he trusts that they will bring him the happiness that he desires. He acts out of his own limited perspective believing that he knows the best way to bring about contentment. He then continues to follow the dominoes, still believing that he can create the life that he wants. He's far more concerned about his own happiness than about Bathsheba or Uriah. Now, just like Saul, this style of sin is so easy to find in our lives. Not quite as drastic, hopefully, there's so many that fall into this category. Instead of simply, even though we are created to love the others the way that we want to be loved, we far more often love ourselves the way that we want to be loved, even at the expense of others. 
So again, examples from my life. I could give you so many from the way I get angry at my kids or random strangers in traffic or at my wife, right? But because David gave a big one, I'll give a bigger one. So for a small portion of my life, about 13 years, I was an addict. I love smoking weed, full-on pothead, right? It's like a third of my life so far. Near the end of that time frame, mid to end of my 20s, my wife called me out and said, Evan, I do not like it when you are high. At that point... I had a decision in front of me, which I chose weed over my love for my wife. Our feelings or our urges so often win the day. We give in to what we think will make us happy, regardless of the effects that we know they will have on those around us. Now, fortunately for Saul, David, you and I, the stories do not stop there. Instead of, a simple, instead of simply allowing his anointed to continue to walk down their own chosen path of destruction, God directly steps in. With both men, God sends prophets. Now, the word prophet simply means one who speaks the message of God. In these cases, God sends these men to point out Saul's and David's sins. So let's start with Saul. Now, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, the prophet, chases Saul down. Initially, Saul tells the prophet that he has followed the commands of the Lord. Samuel then points to the spoils of war. He's like, I hear sheep. I hear goats. I see shiny things. Is that the king? Saul still holds on to his lie and tells Samuel that he has completed the mission and brought the best back in order to sacrifice them to the Lord. He's trying to spin it. Then Samuel... God, through Samuel, answers this way. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination and stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is such a powerful and deeply applicable statement. God tells Saul and us that loving him with everything we have is not demonstrated simply by religious rituals like sacrifice or coming to church once a week. Rather, our willingness to obey God in whatever he asks you to do, he asks me to do, that is how we show that he is our priority. Samuel ends with Saul's punishment. Because you have rejected the Lord, he has rejected you. Now when Saul hears this, Samuel finally has his attention, and he admits that he had sinned. He then asks Samuel twice to return with him so that way he may worship the Lord. The first time, Samuel refuses. Heck no, I'm out of here. Saul grabs and holds onto his cloak. The second time he asks, we get insight into his deeper motivation. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Do you catch what his motivation is? It seems that Saul is repenting, admitting his sins so that he will continue to gain the approval of his people. His deeper desire is not to love God with all of his heart, strength, and mind. Rather, it is to be liked by the masses. 
Now, from this point on, Saul's life is a train wreck. He spends most of his time being led by his jealousy of David and his success, trying to kill God's next anointed king. His life ends by him going to a seance, like a witch, trying to bring Samuel back from the dead so he can get direction. And then when he's being overcome by the enemy, Saul chooses to fall on his own sword. When God calls Saul out on his sin, he chooses to turn inward, to stay focused on his own desires and his own wisdom. By doing this, Saul's life falls apart. Now, David gives us a better example. In 2 Samuel 12, I keep telling you these verses with the hopes that you will go and look at them yourself when we're done. God sends Nathan, another prophet, to David in order to point out his sin. Now, Nathan uses a story to make David's choice of wickedness obvious. He tells him about a rich man who has hundreds and hundreds of flocks of sheep. But he goes in and he steals a poor man's one and only lamb that he loves so deeply so that way the rich man could prepare a meal for a guest that's traveling through. When David hears of this, his anger towards the rich man ignites. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. God then makes the connection to David totally clear. Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God, Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Nathan then describes in details the consequences that David will go through because of his choices. When Nathan finishes describing the terrible things that will occur, David responds with just one sentence. This is what I want us to see. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Did you catch God's response? How can this be? Now, according to Genesis 9-6, you kill someone, then you will be killed. How can this single statement cause or allow God to redeem David from the just consequence of his actions? Remember, Jesus still hasn't come. They are still living under the law of Moses. Now, the beautiful thing about studying David's life is that we have direct access to his journal, the Psalms. Psalms 51 gives us a much deeper explanation of the state of David's heart when his sin is pointed out. Now, I've broken this up. Please go in and read this yourself tonight or tomorrow morning, meditating on where David's at when he comes to this point. Beautiful thing at the top, we see a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So it's right where we are at. 
So this is David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. One more, please. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You can see the verses. I skipped a few in there. Please go back and read this your own. But just for our time, I broke it up. And now I want to walk through and kind of analyze what David was thinking, feeling, how he approached his sin. The beautiful thing is that David begins by turning to God and seeking his mercy. He doesn't start with his excuses or ways in which he can make things better. He simply turns to God and God alone asking God to bring him forgiveness. He then openly admits his sin, declaring that he messed up. He doesn't bring in his excuses or reasons to justify his behaviors. He says that he did what God did not want him to do. He basically tells God that he totally messed up, that he is a source of so much heartache and pain and rightfully deserves to be punished. He then asked God to recreate him, to change him on the deeper level. He not only wants to be forgiven for these sins, but he wants God to work within his heart. Now, what's the Hebrew and the Greek definition of heart? Come on, students. Some of you have been in here for so long. What is it? It's your mind. It's your emotions. It's your willpower. It's the core of who we are. David desires God to change him at his deepest levels so that he does not continue to fall back into his selfish patterns. He ends with the understanding of the same lesson that God was trying to teach Saul, that God does not simply want his rebellious creation to go through religious rituals. Rather, he wants us to be openly he wants us to openly acknowledge our brokenness and then willingly offer our deepest selves to him. Because David approached God in this manner, this is why God was able to forgive him of the ways in which he broke the law. According to the Bible, this is what repentance looks like. It is an open acknowledgement of one's sin and a sincere desire to be changed by their Savior. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to cry out to the Lord, to acknowledge your brokenness and ask him to change you because you know that he is the only one that can. Because David did this, the rest of his life is far different than Saul's. He still suffers the consequences of his sin, man, and they are ugly. But he does not fall into the pit of self selfishness. Because he truly repents, God is able to continue to work on his heart. 
God is able to keep him from becoming the self-centered and miserable man that so many people become. All right, let's start talking about you and I. I hope your mind's already going there. But God is always sending prophets to point out our sin. Every person has a conscience. It's a God-given gift. It's a barometer that God gave us that enables us to know if we are doing what is right or wrong. It's what makes you feel the feelings that nobody likes. That gnawing or empty-like feeling in your gut. The continual, even nagging fixation on an event, a conversation, a word. Our conscience is triggered by so many different things. Your own train of thought, a song. Tell Joseph I say hi, Arvin. Our conscience is triggered by so many different things. Your own train of thought, a song, a Bible verse, a scene from a movie, a conversation with a friend or family member. God, through his spirit, is always pointing out our unsuccessfulness. He does not do this so that we feel condemned. Rather, he does this, he convicts us out of his compassion. He deeply desires his creation to experience life to the full. He wants you to be content. So he lets you know when you're being drawn away by your own passing desires. Let me continue with the example that I first gave you. This week, God pointed out my tendency to turn to other people's approvals of my teaching so that way I would be happier. To make this clear, I believe that he allowed my brain to crash twice in three days. Now, when you have experienced a traumatic brain injury, it's not uncommon for your brain to grind to a halt. Think about the way that your shoulder or your knee or your back, right, after it's been injured, just randomly gives you problems. It's hard to walk. It's hard to stand on it, right? It can be days, weeks, months, years after it's happened, but something aggravates it. It's the exact same thing when people have suffered major issues with the brain. Now, when the brain does this, it's so hard to have a conversation, let alone prepare teachings. As I began to get angry at God for allowing this to happen for the millionth time, right when I was getting all fired up to come in here and teach you guys, he caused a song to play on my Pandora that deeply triggered my conscience. It spoke directly to my heart. In the midst of heavy tears, I haven't sobbed like this. I don't know the last time I've sobbed like this. I realize that I still depend on my own abilities in teaching so I can gain your approval, which I believe will make me happy. Now, through this broken and strongly emotional state, God brought me to my knees. From this spot, I had two options. Remain focused on myself on my desires, on my ability to bring my brain back to a functioning state so that way I could continue to pursue happiness through your approval. Or I could repent. I could acknowledge my selfishness, the ways that I see myself as God of my own world, and then cry out to my 
my creator to forgive me and change my deeper motivations, to ask him to truly teach me that I bring no good on my own, that it's impossible for me to say anything to you that will change your life unless it is straight from him. When you feel convicted, whenever your sin against God or against other people is made obvious to you, you have these same two options. You can remain locked in your own world, remain dependent on your own power to bring yourself contentment, to walk down the path of Saul, one of eventual pain and loss. Or you can turn to your maker. You can openly admit your failures, seek his forgiveness, and ask him to change you on the deeper levels, to make you a better follower, a better spouse, a better, a better uh, parent, a better friend, to direct you down the path of David, one of restoration and growth and genuine contentment down the path that you were created to live down. As the musicians come back up, I want to challenge you. As they sing this song, I want you to take some time to think about whether or not this is where your heart is at, where your mind, your emotions, your willpower are. Are they dependent upon your creator, the one that gave you today, the one that caused the sun to rise, the one that knit you together perfectly in every way that you are? Or are they focused on you, your temporary, broken? Who do you turn to to give you what you know you want? your temporary broken minds or the creator of everything.